with us on a journey into the unknown, the unexplained, and the unbelievable. We will test your senses and challenge your beliefs. A world where science and religion clash. Or do they? You will meet real people and hear real stories, but you will not believe. You will witness strange sights and hear strange sounds, but you will not believe. This is the New England Ghost Project. Welcome to the Welcome to Ghost Chronicles Next Generation. I'm your host, Ann Kerrigan, AKA the Blonde Bombshell. Unfortunately, not with me this evening is Van Helsing, Ronald Kolak, because he's out chasing vampires, trying to keep the world safe. That's what vampire hunters do. But don't worry, he will be returning, so he'll be back. Uh, tonight we have a special show filled with spooky tales, cemeteries and ghosts to whet your appetite for Halloween because that's what it's all about. Our first tale comes from Roxy's Wicker and she has the tale of Lucy Hale. Hello and greetings of this spooky season. It is Roxy's Wicker from New England Curiosities and I'm here at the beautiful Pine Hill Cemetery in Dover, New Hampshire on this colorful and yet gloomy day. It was on March 29th, 1731 that the Pine Hill Burial Ground was established at a town meeting. The town record states voted that there be one acre and a half of land granted for the use of the town forever for a public burying place to be laid out by ye selectmen near ye meeting house on Pine Hill at Kachika. At one point, the cemetery was one of the largest in New Hampshire. The grounds covered approximately 75 acres and it had its own network of roads that stretched seven and a half miles. There are a variety of gravestones at the cemetery, the oldest of which sit near the Central Avenue side. A few toothy winged skulls can be found on the stones, and there are a number of graves with angels and Victorian sculptures. You'll find many Gothic-styled monuments on a sloping hill towards the center of the cemetery. As the cemetery extends back and across the street, the markers become simpler and less ornate, which these graves are a little bit more recent. One of the most fascinating stories in the cemetery is that of Lucy Lambert Hale. Her gravestone reads, Lucy Hale Chandler, wife of Senator William E. Chandler, January 1st, 1841, October 15th, 1915. Her story is one of romance, intrigue, and national tragedy. Lucy was said to be quite an appealing young lady, and many suitors admired her at an early age. Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr., son of the famous poet, met her on vacation in Maine, and after she returned home, he stayed in close correspondence, sending her love letters, and she was only 17. Lucy also caught the eye of Robert Todd Lincoln, the oldest son of President Abraham Lincoln. Lucy's father, a prominent senator, had hoped that the two would marry. While their romance was short-lived, they remained good friends throughout the years. 
In April 1861, at the onset of the Civil War, Lucy and her family moved to Washington, D.C. And once again, Lucy attracted much attention from the community, as demonstrated by a Valentine's Day letter written in 1862. My dear Miss Hale, were it not for the license which a time-honored observance of this day allows, I had not written you this poor note. You resemble in a most remarkable degree a lady very dear to me, now dead, and your close resemblance to her has surprised me the first time I saw you. This must be my apology for any apparent rudeness noticeable. To see you has indeed afforded me a melancholy pleasure, if you can conceive of such. And should we never meet, nor I see you again, believe me, I shall always associate you in my memory with her, who is very beautiful, and whose face, like your own I trust, was a faithful index of gentleness and amiability. With a thousand kind wishes for your future happiness, I am to you a stranger. The intriguing letter was sent to 21-year-old Lucy from John Wilkes Booth. Booth was a stage actor with a reputation for being a notorious ladies' man. He was handsome and had a magnetic personality and a dedicated following of female fans. Based on accounts, the romantic approach that Booth took with Lucy was rather unusual. The prospect of marrying a senator's daughter certainly held quite a lot of appeal for Booth as well. Lucy was immediately charmed by the charismatic Booth. And not long after they started spending time together, they were secretly engaged. President Lincoln's second inauguration took place on March 4th, 1865. And Lucy had given Booth a ticket to attend. Booth reportedly said, What an excellent chance I had if I wished to kill the president on inauguration day. At the time, Booth was engaged in a plot to kidnap President Lincoln and hold him hostage in exchange for the release of Southern prisoners that were held in Union Army camps. However, the plan was never carried out. So Booth, a well-known Confederate sympathizer, came up with another idea to assassinate the president. It wasn't long before the couple began to have disagreements, and Booth's jealousy of Lucy's close friendship with the president's son set him off. Shortly after the inauguration, Booth stayed at the National Hotel in Washington and spent more of his time engaged in secret meetings, though it is believed Lucy knew nothing of his motive. Lucy's father opposed her relationship with Booth, and near the end of his senatorial term, he approached President Lincoln about a new position. The president appointed Lucy's father as an ambassador to Spain, which would help put a distance between the young couple. On the morning of April 14, 1865, witnesses reported seeing Booth and Lucy in deep conversation in a room at the National Hotel. Lucy had spent the rest of the day studying Spanish with Lincoln's son. Meanwhile, Booth learned that the president would be attending a performance at Ford's Theater that evening, and he put his plan in motion. After having dinner with Lucy and her mother that evening, he lovingly bade his sweetheart goodbye. 
Almost an hour later, Booth walked into the theater and killed President Lincoln with a single gunshot wound to the head. Lucy was shocked and saddened by the death of the president, and when she heard a letter was found that connected Booth to the murder, their engagement was over. Immediately after the shooting, Booth fled to Maryland. He was pursued, however, and eventually found hiding in a barn in Virginia. He was captured and killed, and Lucy's photograph, along with the photos of four other women, were found in his pocket. Lucy went with her father to Spain. She was courted by many men in the five years she spent abroad, but she wasn't interested in marriage. In 1870, Lucy and her family returned to America. But soon after, her father became quite ill, and she took to tending to his needs at their home in Dover until he died in 1873. She was approached by a man named William Chandler sometime after her father's death. Chandler had expressed an interest in her some years before her relationship with Booth, and after exchanging a series of passionate love letters, the two were married in 1874. Chandler was a politician, and he was soon appointed Secretary of the Navy and United States Senator. The couple lived in both Washington and New Hampshire, and finally settled in New Hampshire after Chandler finished his service. A statue was placed at the State House in Concord in memory of Lucy's father, and today it stands with the statues of other famous New Hampshire men, including Daniel Webster, President Franklin Pierce, and John Stark. Lucy passed away in 1915, and William died two years later in 1917. So as the leaves cascade down, creating colorful swirls on the ground around Lucy's gravestone, we look across the Pine Hill Cemetery and wonder, is Lucy one of the wandering spirits that have been mentioned over the years that walk the paths of this beautiful hallowed place? Perhaps they are the spirits of many of Lucy's suitors, where even in death, their spirits cannot find themselves away from Lucy's side. We'll leave it for you to decide. Thank you for walking through the graveyard with me today. If you enjoy stories like this, a little mix of history and ghosts, check out my podcast, Wicked Curious Radio, which can be found on most major podcast platforms. And don't forget to visit newenglandcuriosities.com for events based on legends, lore, history, and mystery throughout New England. Many happy hauntings, and stay spooky, my friends. Well, that was quite a story. Imagine being engaged to John Wilkes Booth. Uh, no, I don't think so. Not my first choice. But apparently he was a very charming actor, right? Uh, but thank God she didn't marry him, and unfortunately, he still killed the president, but... Thank God she didn't marry him. A little scary. Our next tale comes from our Paranews reporter, Nathan Mayer. And he has a few Broadway ghosts.
Due to the recent announcement of Broadway exercising Beetlejuice and the Phantom at the beginning of 2023, here are just a few of the more notable great white visitors of the Great White Way. The ghost of acrobatic Louis Vaselina allegedly haunts the Palace Theater. Observers have said that the ghost is a white clothed figure swinging in the air before emitting a blood curdling scream and falling. Vaselina, who was a member of the acrobatic act before casting pearls, was injured when he fell 18 feet during a performance on August 28, 1935, before 800 theater goers. Vaselina's act was not a trapeze, but rather a fixed towers in which the acrobats were cast from one to the other. Comedian Pat Hennings started his act in front of a curtain that was pulled right after the accident. Vaselina died in 1963. Granted landmark status in 1974, the Lyceum Theater is the oldest continuously running theater on Broadway and houses the Sherbert Archive. Hence, it should come to no surprise that it is rife with bygone days. A ghost seemed to inhabit the upper balcony's cheap seats, where strange sounds and the smell of cigarette smoke seemed to emanate during the performances of the visit. The cast and crew thought it was the ghost of an old friend, choreographer and director Bob Fosse, who loved balcony seats and was close to few of the actors in and the composer of the musical. The Belasco Theater is the subject of an urban legend that the ghosts of owner, theatrical producer, director, and playwright, David Belasco, haunts the theater every night. According to actors and backstage personnel, the ghost wears a clerical-like outfit and sits in an empty box during opening night performances. Several actors have reported that the ghosts would try to speak to them. One caretaker reportedly also heard rattling from the chains of Belasco's private elevator, which had long since been abandoned. The workers of the new Amsterdam theater have experienced the most active ghost on Broadway, Olive Thomas, a chorus girl in the 1915 Zegville Follies on the main stage and Siegfeld's more intimate Midnight Frolics on the top floor of the building. When in Hollywood, Olive made a handful of silent films and married Jack Pickford, the younger brother of period superstar Mary Pickford. On a trip to Paris in 1920, Olive accidentally swallowed Jack's medicine, mercury biochloride. Olive died five days later at the age of 25. Very soon after her death, reports began that Olive was walking about the theater in a green beaded dress, carrying a big blue bottle. So before you leave an auditorium, please leave the ghost light on down center stage for the spirits that may want to perform during your absence. If not, they may curse or sabotage your set or production. Thank you, Nate, for sharing those spooky stories from the Great White Way. Next time I'm in the theater, I'm definitely going to be looking over my shoulder. And now we have a little spooky tale from Barla Ventura's Paranormal Parlor, one of my favorite books. And I had to put on my big girl glasses to read this because I am blind. 
Oh, there you are. So this is a story about the Green Mountain Inn in Stowe, Vermont. And I chose this one because we have friends who live very near there. And maybe next time we're up there, we'll check it out. So the Green Mountain Inn in Stowe, Vermont. From the outside, you would never guess that this charming 105 guest room inn is haunted. But according to hauntedrooms.com, some claim a spirit from the 1800s has haunted the hotel since it was opened. And that spirit has more than a semblance of personality. Old Boots Berry is the inn's former horseman and was so named because of his love of tap dance. Boots was born in the hotel servants' quarters and beloved by the townspeople for his heroic rescue of a stagecoach. But Boots also loved to drink and was eventually fired because of it. Boots became a drifter, though he made his way back to the town of Stowe. In 1902, Boots saved a child from a rooftop during a major snowstorm, but slipped and fell during the rescue. He died, but guests say they can hear the sound of Boots tapping on the roof. OK. I have to ask this question. What was the kid doing up on the, on the roof in the middle of a major snowstorm? Where were their parents? I don't know. But anyways, good story, Varla. Thank you very much. And now we have a story from Bridget Pitts, who is uh, the owner of the Witching Hour Paranormal Ghost Tours in Savannah, Georgia. We are going to talk about Execution Square and the tragic tale of Alice Riley. Hi, my name is Bridget Pitts and I'm from the Witching Hour Paranormal Ghost Tour Company and welcome to Savannah, Georgia. We're currently in Wright Square, which is, was originally our execution square in 1733. Now, the first woman in the state of Georgia to ever be executed by hanging was a young girl named Alice Riley and she was executed in this square. Now, Alice Riley came here with a common-law husband named Richard White and they were both itemized and assigned to a man named William Wise. William was a terrible man from England who lied through his teeth in order to get to the New World. In order to get to Savannah, they wanted you to be married, and since he wasn't married, he hires a couple of working girls. One to play his wife and an underage one to play his daughter. It gives this whole sob story and they allow him access here. Now, he ditches these girls, becomes a farmer that nobody likes, but money talks and people turn a blind eye to everything that he does in this town. Now, when Alice and Richard get assigned to him, he starts physically and unfortunately sexually abusing Alice. Anytime Richard would try to defend and fight back in Alice's honor, he would get beaten and tortured to the point of almost death. And she was so scared to lose that only connection she had here in the new world, she decided to take on this abuse instead and then started waking up with morning sickness and realized that she was with child. Now, her and Richard knew that this was their master, William Wise's baby. So they decided to come up with an escape plan that involved a routine bathing. Now, William Wise always forced Alice Riley to bathe him in the tub naked every Sunday. And on this night, it's March 1st, 1734, and it's another routine bathing. Now, as Alice is bathing William Wise in the tub, Richard decides to creep up behind and proceeds to attack William Wise. Now, as Richard White proceeds to dunk William's head underneath this bathtub water, he's fighting back. So Alice actually grabs a razor and slits William's throat to finish off the job. Some say that a handkerchief was actually involved as well. 
Now, when they finally kill William Wise, they take his body out of the tub, sneak it down to the river, and they dump the body. Now, they try to run to a place called the Isle of Hope, which is a beautiful area of Savannah. It's about a 35-minute drive from here, and indentured servants were out there at the time. So, they're trying to run out there, blend in with all these other Irish indentured servants, and run to Charleston, South Carolina as their escape plan. And it seemed like a good idea. But as they were running, somebody is down by the river the next day and they happen to spot a body. And of course, it's William Wise. So naturally, as they're looking for Alice and Richard to question the servants in town, they can't find him anywhere, so a manhunt ensues. And before they get out to the Isle of Hope, they get caught immediately, dragged back here, thrown into magistrate, and they're both sentenced to be executed for the death of William Wise. Now, Richard was executed immediately. But while Alice was in court, she's pleading to the magistrate, please, I'm a child, do not do this. But nobody believes that she's pregnant. And as they start to drag her out to the gallows and start prepping her for her execution, she is weeping and begging these people for her unborn baby's life. Now a doctor who's present in the crowd stops everything and says, let me see if she is indeed with child. And he confirms in front of all these people after he examines her that she indeed was actually pregnant. Alice Riley's execution date was actually set for January 19, 1735, after realizing that she was with child. Now, after Alice Riley gives birth to a baby boy, she calls him James, and they take this baby from her as they do anybody in the prison system. And when her execution date was set, they dragged her out of her cell and they hung her in the square on the tree that we will be showing you for three days as an example to everybody in this town. Now. It's a little bit of a blurred line what actually happened to her body on the third day after her execution because since it did go missing, two documentations claim that they buried her on West York, which is the original cemetery grounds, from 1733 till 1750 until Colonial Park Cemetery opened up. But the second documentation actually claimed that they cut her body down from that tree where they hung her and they actually fed her to pigs. Now, a pig can eat your body on a farm within a few hours, give or take, sometimes even less than that. And a lot of locals do believe that is probably the most likely unfortunate event that could have actually happened at the time. Now, minus Alice Riley's body going missing after her execution, and we don't know what happened necessarily, Alice Riley did have a small child, and she had a son named James. Now, as far as local legend goes, her child actually died two weeks after her execution, and nobody knows what happened to his body, and he most likely died of malnutrition and starvation. Nobody took care of him. So, a lot of people that come to Savannah, and even locals, have stated that they have seen Alice Riley in the square and she weeps and begs people for her child and the police officers actually get called out here so much for this specific call that is now a hazing ritual for the rookies here in Savannah. And that is the story of Alice Riley, a historic figure yet a ghostly tale. Great story from Bridget. I've always wanted to visit Savannah. It's definitely on my bucket list and now I want to go there even more. Next up, we have Stephen Scott, our favorite Scottish spiritualist medium, and he is going to talk about the coffin roots. Imagine the sensations that you would feel walking slowly along difficult roads and along difficult tracks, with the weight bearing down upon your shoulders as the wind 
bites at your skin, at every piece of exposed flesh. As the rain continues to drip and seep into the very fibre of your being. As your clothes soak, as your foot falls one in front of another, filling the footsteps of those come before you, dislodging water, ice-cold wind biting at you, and all the while, the persistent, insistent weight of a coffin upon your shoulders. Hi everyone, welcome again to another story from Scotland. This time on Halloween, I'd like to talk about the coffin roots. And a lot of people have probably never heard of what the coffin roots are. So for a moment, just imagine that when you lived rurally, in almost within about 100 years ago, in some settlement areas in Scotland, there were times when, with the passing of a family member or a loved one, it was necessary to try and transport the body from its place of rest at home to its permanent place of rest that would have been on a sacred site or a burial ground or a mound, a cemetery or a church or chapel. The process of doing this involves a great deal of superstitious elements, a great deal of old school stories and myths from Scotland. And invariably, this all started in the home. It's not uncommon still today for many families to have on display the body for those who want to wish to come and visit it. And when it's lying in state in the house, it was important that it never touched the ground. It was also important that it remained elevated above ground, preferably on two chairs or a table. And when the time came, after everyone had had their farewells, after a wake had been organised, some drinks were taken and a toast made to the recently dead. When it was time to move the body forward, it would have been picked up by four to six people and the coffin processional would take place. And at that same moment, the chairs and the table or whatever it was resting on above ground would be kicked over and knocked away. And not only that, sometimes they were taken outside and burned. Because it was important, extremely important, that the spirit of the recently deceased knows this is no longer its home and it's not welcome there. That those chairs its body was resting upon are not the chairs belonging to that spirit anymore. That that spirit, almost a ghost, if you were, had no place in this world, at this house, anymore. It was time to move on. And so, being led out through the processional, with the chairs tipped and turned away, making no comfortable space for that spirit to see as home anymore, the coffin would be led feet first out the door. And that's a common phrase still in Scotland. When I leave this place, I'll be going feet first, indicating that you're not leaving this house until you pass, until your physical body has given it up and that you, being dead, are now spirit. And the reason for this is because if you were to lead the body out head first and the spirit accompanies it, 
It's leaving a trail and it can follow its own footsteps back because it can see the direction it's coming from and it knows that house is still there and that it can, if it chooses, come back to live and reside once more in that house to become restless. So to avoid that, the coffin was always led out feet first so that no one, no member of our family would ever try to come home again against our will and against their better judgement in finding a place in the next life. So the processionals would begin to move and it was important that they found a place and a safe passage from the home to the permanent place of rest. And this is where the coffin roots began to take shape. It's believed still today that spirit like to travel direct and straight. They like to move in straight lines from one place to another. And so as a result, many of the coffin routes meandered. They took over hills, through crossroads, across rivers. And this is still something that you hear talked about today, where spirit cannot engage with crossroads because there are too many routes between their existence and this one. And the same for the running water. Running water, spirit will not cross if it can help it. So as these routes meandered through the countryside, over hill, down dale, through crossroad areas, looping back through other towns, around through forests, these became rural routes. And these rural routes took on a sacred significance in themselves, a sombre element. Because like the spirit and like the corpse, those who were walking were grieving. They were grieving with their own existence from the life they had with a loved one into the future life without them. So both the corpse and the mourners moved in a liminal state, a state between worlds. And that type of attachment that you form to that state can easily act as a beacon. It can shine a light out to all those other lost souls and lost spirits who find themselves stuck between worlds because perhaps the proper ritual has not been adhered to. So as the coffin processional would take place, these would go for many, many lengths. Some very famous ones included a 60-70 mile journey across Scotland to go from a place of passing to a place of permanent rest particularly where lords and ladies themselves had passed. And some of these processionals would include a total of 500 uh, pallbearers carrying the beer on which the coffin would lay. And they would stop and exchange uh, their burden along the road, many often taking it up for days on end as they slowly, slowly walked the miles to where the body would be laid. And as the processional began to move, it became important that the corpse and the body would never touch the ground. For to do so may form an attachment and give the spirit a reality with which to bind itself to the land. So they would raise the coffin up by building small cairns and place the coffin upon them. And where pallbearers and beer carriers swapped over, they would also raise a small stone cairn just to act out of respect and also to change the environment so that the falling spirit 
even by a small note, uh, matter would never find its way back the direction they had come from. For by placing one stone, that could also be confusing in a change. And all these small rituals began to build up and take place. Respect for the dead was very important. Therefore, women would be permitted to go some way. Certain women, of course, who were able to perform the necessary grieving and singing of what was known as the Koranach, which was a dirge for the dead, expressing sorrow and respect and concern and love, and the hope that the spirit itself would never feel aggrieved or badly sent upon its way, and therefore would want to return once more back into this world in a fit of vengeance or anger at its passing. And yet still certain women in certain phases of their lives would not have been permitted to follow the processional. And this was to tie in with aspects of youth and fertility, rebirth and death. Life and death were always separated and no one would want a young lady carrying a young child to suddenly find the spirit of that child displaced by an angry, displaced spirit of its own. Because the coffin processionals, as I said, acted as beacons. And not everyone who was taken safely from the place of death to place of rest made it there with all the necessary precautions being taken place. And it's well known that on coffin routes you sometimes see corpse lights floating above the ground. Particularly at the moment of death, sometimes it's said these corpse lights cut across coffin routes, moving directly from the graveyard to where they will be placed, to the home where the recently deceased lies. And it's sometimes again said that these are the, either the spirits of other mem family members coming forward or the angelic forces coming to help guide them on their way. No one really knows. So when you walk and you see these corpse lights moving, it's an indicator that perhaps on that route you're not alone. That at some point, a poor soul has perhaps lost his way along the processional. That the proper rites and concerns for the body have not been taken. Or that people have just made a simple error that resulted in a lost soul finding themselves trapped on a meandering route between crossroads and rivers that they can never return from. And there are samples of that within many stories. Some is most recent as the middles of the 19th century, the 20th century, sorry, in 1942 at the falls of Glomach. An RAF squadron were training with marine commandos and they were undertaking uh, simple manoeuvres and the commanding officer saw this line of people coming up a hill towards him and there was no pathway, just a, just an old dirt track and he described it as a very pitiful sounding gathering that was slowly making its way towards him and then he and several others 
some men come up from the bushes and begin to assault this processional that was moving towards them. And before they could do anything, every man, woman and child was slain. Killed by these marauders that came out of nowhere in the bushes. And yet, when they finally made their way down to investigate, no bodies could be seen. No evidence of slaughter was ever made. However, it did transpire that the old ruined church was just behind them over the hill and that this may well have been a processional in spirit, trapped to forever walk its own coffin route, having been accosted by brigands, members of a rival family, anyone who wanted to prevent the spirit from receiving its final resting place. And Scotland is a beautiful land and a beautiful place. And there are many coffin routes along all the back areas, the hillsides, the valleys, up through the forests. So whenever you go walking in Scotland, take care. Because not every coffin route provided a good story. Not every coffin route proved to be safe. There was one story as well comes to mind. And it took place at the summit of Ben Ledy in the Trossachs at Lochan uh, Tor and one family was pursuing the coffin route there and they were taking their family member safe to the church on the other side of the Lochan which is a small loch, small, small area of water and as they were walking along carrying the coffin the ice cracked and before they could flee the entire family fell to their death into the icy loch never to be seen again. So when you walk through the hills, the valleys and the forests of Scotland, it may be worthwhile just having a look, checking up first if you live or work or will be going and walking along the coffin routes. Because you never know as you're walking and as you see the sun beginning to set in the background, and as the clouds move past and the skies begin to darken and the hills begin to set into the night, you may never know truly who could be walking beside you. Keep an eye out for the corpse lights. Even though they may guide you home, they may lead you astray. Because truly, in the dark and in the dank and in the wetlands of Scotland, when the wind howls and when the night closes in and that last speck of daylight begins to vanish, you never truly know who's walking ahead or behind you. What an intriguing story about the coffin roots. I was captivated hearing all about all these Scottish customs. They'll take me out feet first. <laughs> That's awesome. I love that. That should definitely be on a t-shirt. But it's amazing how many things that they couldn't do and how many superstitions they had about the coffin touching the ground and, and making sure the spirit knew it was unwelcome after, after the funeral was all over. So that was really well done. Thank you so much, Stephen.
And next up, we have a little spell from moi, just to liven things up, and I hope you will find it helpful. Hi, everybody. Welcome to my haunted kitchen. Today, we're going to be casting a little spell in honor of Halloween and just a little something for those of you who might be looking for a house. I got this spell from a website called TessWhitehurst.com and she is a witch and offers all kinds of different spells and blogs and you might want to check out her site. But she had exactly what I was looking for, which is a spell for finding and buying a home. Few things can be as exciting or as stressful as the process of buying a home. Lucky for you, you're magical. So you can work the spell to magnetize the home that is perfect for you. In this ritual, you'll be working with Hestia, the Greek goddess of hearth and home. It's best to perform this spell on a Thursday when the moon is between new and full. So there's very particular time frame that you should be doing this spell. But for today, or can I say it's Tuesday? <laughs> so the ingredients you will need, paper, we have a pad of paper, pen or pencil, a red or burgundy candle, lighter or matches, a dinner plate, Vitex powder, uh, which is from the berries of the chaste tree. It's from the dried berries and it's native to the Mediterranean. And interestingly enough, this powder is also a supplement for fertility as well as for transitioning into menopause. So I don't know, it's, it's, it's a one size, it's all, I don't know. <laughs> and apparently you can get it at some CVS locations uh, or you can order it online as all good witches probably do. <laughs> All right, and we also have some whole cloves, a wine glass, good red wine, and this is one of my favorites. This is called Ghost Pines, and my good friend Carol gifted me with this bottle, and it's very good. And that is everything we need to prepare our spell. So, first of all, you should sit comfortably with pen and paper. At the top, write our or my new home, and make a list of all the features and qualities that you desire in your new home. And if you want to put down a price range that's ideal for you, how you'll feel in your new home, and as you write, do your best to feel as if you are excitedly describing a place that is already yours. Take your time and write multiple drafts if necessary until it feels just right. Once it's complete, feel gratitude for this new home again as if it's already yours. So I've already written on this paper uh, all the things that I would want to find in a new home. So I am going to take this paper, rip it off, and we're going to fold the paper twice, folding it towards yourself each time. All right, so that's one, two. We're gonna place it in the middle of our dinner plate and then we are going to take our candle and we're going to put it in the center of the dinner plate on top of our list of intentions. 
Now we're going to sprinkle a small amount of the cloves and the Vitex powder on the plate around our candle. I'm sure this doesn't have to be perfect, right? Just throw it on there. Okay, so, and now we're gonna do our cloves. What do we use cloves for besides sticking them into ham? Remember your mom always used to do that? Just big, that big old canned ham <laughs> and stick a bunch of cloves in it. All right, so there's our cloves. And now we are going to light the candle. And hopefully, there we go. We've lit our red candle. And we're going to say, Hestia, I call on you. Set the wine glass near the dinner plate with the candle. Open your bottle of wine. Mine's already open. It's almost gone. And you're going to pour a glass of wine. Okay. Let's put a little bit in there. I think that's enough for Hestia. Now we will say, Hestia, I lovingly offer you this libation. Radiant Goddess, I humbly request that you help magnetize this home into our life. By your powers of warmth, laughter, sustenance, and safety, please unite us within this home swiftly, perfectly, and in a divine manner. Hestia, gratitude for sharing your beauty and blessings. Gratitude. Now, it says here, if you'd like, you can pour yourself a glass of wine. I'm going to take I'm going to take up, up on that offer. Just a little. It's early. And if there are any loved ones who will join you in the home, you might want to pour them a glass of wine too. Toast to Hestia and your new home. Again, gratefully celebrating as if you've already found and purchased it. And drink. Here's to you, Hestia, and here's to my beautiful new house. Very good. So now you want to allow the candle to burn all the way down. Of course, if you have to go out and go to the market or go out and do something, you can extinguish it and relight it later in the day or at intervals over the next few days. After a few hours have passed, take the wine glass that we poured for Hestia, take it outside and offer its contents to the earth. Continue to feel gratitude whenever you think of your move and your new home. So that is our spell. Pretty simple. I think most people have everything on hand except the Vitex powder. I mean, they have to run out and find that somewhere. But if you're looking for a new home, I hope this spell works for you. And in the meantime, happy Halloween. So I chose this spell especially because my daughter and her husband are going to be looking for a house soon. They're expecting their first child in January, and I'm sure they are going to be ready to have their own place after the baby is born. So fingers crossed, maybe it'll actually work. And now we have a cemetery tripping flashback with Van Helsing. Friends Cemetery is a small private Quaker cemetery in Leicester, Massachusetts which has acquired some bizarre tales on the internet, such as the gates being one of a series of portals to hell, 
a place for satanic rituals, home to a hanging tree, and the site of a murder. It is also said to be monitored by the police and no one is allowed in. In reality, well, let's just say the evidence is lacking. I think it's very peaceful out here. Um, really don't get any bad vibes whatsoever. Here we are, yeah, where the, where the hell are we? Uh, we are in Spidergate Cemetery in Leicester, Massachusetts. First, I like to say Lichester. That's not how you say it. That's the way I say it. Anyways, uh, you know, this is probably the most disappointing paranormal experience I've had in my life. <laughs> I am here. I, I expect to pass through the seven gates where I get definitely weaker and weaker, and eventually when I pass through the seventh gate, I die. This, I can only find the front gates there. Uh, I have no explanation for... Where's the Quaker Meeting House? Anything that has been posted online about this place. Where's the Quaker Meeting House? Uh, well, there used to be a Quaker Meeting House back in the 1800s, but it's gone now. Where's the hanging tree? Here anymore. I don't know about the hanging tree. I think you'd have to have a crane to deposit yourself at the nearest, highest branch of that tree to hang yourself. So Maybe it grew up. Uh, maybe. I don't know. But so, I, I don't know what this place is. I really don't. It's just totally disappointment. I came here with great excitement and anticipation, and it's just like, you know, running downstairs at Christmas, opening your gifts and find out you get underwear again. You know, it just doesn't cut it. I I told you I'd bring you to see the Spidergate Cemetery. You did. You I did. never promised you excitement. You never promised me a rose garden. I did not. I didn't get one. I did not. All right, thank you. I, uh, I, just I, have to... I will tell you, though, it's. I think it's worth the trip. If you're into cemeteries, it's a beautiful little cemetery in the middle of the woods, and it's maybe, I don't know, quarter mile walk in from the road kind of have to know where mile. it is it's not a mile don't listen to him but it's a very peaceful you take it right by the barley and on the ground beautiful <laughs> cemetery so come out and see it if you can find somebody to show you where it is you take a right turn at the diaper over there and then you'll find yourself right there goodbye now one more story from me from Barla Ventura's book of Fairies, pukas, and changelings. Get the old glasses back out again. So this is a little information about a puka. Not surprisingly, animals play a prominent role in the land of fairies. Whether it's their own miniature steed on which to ride across hill and dale on the blackest night, or a herd of sheep that they strive to protect, the natural world from which the fairies come is the same as the place of the birds and the dragonflies, the toads and the goats. In some cases, the fairy takes the form of the animal, as is the case with the Irish puka or puka, the Irish word for goblin. You'll find as many variations on the spelling as the puka itself. And I'm not going to read them all to you because there's about 10 of them. <laughs> The puka can take nearly any form, including invisibility, though it is most frequently seen in the form of a horse, a black horse with eyes of fire and breath of blue flame. This horse takes the terrified mortal who is most unfortunate to have encountered it on a midnight ride that turns their hair white, but no real harm actually comes to the person, usually. The shapeshifter can also appear as a goat goblin, dog, eagle, ass, and even a rabbit.
The puka, although feared, can also be plied with gifts, and in some accounts, it will speak and tell one's future. Most often, the puka is encountered when one is alone on an empty lane at night, and quite often seen when one is three sheets to the wind. Because the puka so enjoys trickery, it tends to pick on the slovenly drunkards, knowing that no one will believe the details of the outrageous encounter the next day. And though the puka can be helpful and is most often a trickster, they can be more vicious. Pukas can turn crops, sour the milk, and make children sick. Some even believe that a puka can cause one to commit suicide. Well, that's terrible, but also sounds very much like our local Pukwudgies here in the Bridgewater Triangle. Hmm. Well, I hope you've enjoyed our special Halloween show and it gets you in the mood for some spooky fun on the big night. Van Helsing sends his love. We know how lovely he is. And until we talk again, happy Halloween and happy haunting. From ghoulies to ghosties, long-leggedy beasties, and things that go bump in the night. Deliver us, good Lord.